All right, welcome back to the A Game Podcast. I completely apologize. I did not get an episode out on Thursday. I have been uh, doing what you're not supposed to be doing and uh, spending time in a property, but I uh, got totally sidetracked, didn't get it out there. But I apologize with an amazing episode today with Mr. Frank Rolfe. This guy just gives killer content, direct answers. I'm really impressed. This is going to open your eyes to mobile home, mobile home park investing, and a guy who's got 30 years experience in investing and a degree from Stanford in economics, as well as a ton of experience in just finance and, and investing through recessions. And I think he's a great litmus test, very logical. He knows what he's talking about because of the education and also because of the experience. And he uses the combination of both to give what I believe to be an outstanding interview with great value that got me really excited to uh, learn more about the asset class and listen to his advice a lot more as well. So I really very much appreciate Frank Rolf coming on. He's not all over on uh, social media, so a lot of people might not know him if you're only going through Instagram and Facebook, but if you're in the know and you look him up a little bit, you will see that he is an absolute force to be reckoned with. Number five top mobile home park operator in the entire country with a portfolio of 20,000 plus lots worth over a billion dollars. You absolutely want to listen to this episode. So got it, got it out a little late on Monday, but we got it out. There'll be another one Thursday and we got, again, some really great episodes coming out. So I appreciate you guys. Forgiving me for missing an episode last week, but I'll keep trying to do what I can to bring you content and update you on some live deals and some good case studies and really get things rocking and rolling. And I'm trying to get more active on our Facebook group, so definitely find the links for that. As always, this is sponsored in part by Nationwide Business Capital Group. Go to nicknick.com slash links. Under the affiliates, you can click on a link to email Marianne and tell her the A-game podcast sent you over. She will roll out the red carpet and give you guys all the options and the best rates and terms to be competitive, whether it's for fix and flips, rentals, portfolio loans, commercial loans, possibly mobile home parks, as well as uh, any types of line of credit, whether you're beginner, intermediate, advanced. If you're looking to get creative, Nationwide Business Capital Group is one of the most creative solution-based lenders out there, and they will take good care of you like they have for me and for many of our other clients. So reach out to her today. Marianne, Nationwide Business Capital Group, sponsoring the A-Game Podcast. We'll take good care of you. Even if you don't know where to start, that is a place to go so we can figure out what types of properties we should be going after for you based on your specific situation. We can find a fit. And of course, if you're looking for deals, reach out to me, nakedatnick.com slash links is all the ways to please subscribe to this podcast and find me on social media. Reach out. Let's talk about how to get you involved, whether you want to buy properties from me, sell properties to me, or find a way to partner up, especially lately. We have so many people that have been reaching out to me trying to figure out how to get into smaller multifamily and mobile home park deals, whether you're just starting out or you're looking to scale up, let's find a way to work together and get you involved in real estate. Um, I apologize if I have not gotten back to everybody again. I appreciate everybody who's been reaching out and we're working through that list still. Shout out to Barry for reaching out. I'm going to work on getting Barry something as well. Always love hearing from him. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening to the A-Game Podcast. Thank you, Frank Rawls, and uh, I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game.
Okay, I am very excited for our guest today on the A-Game podcast. He owns over 20,000 lots in 28 states. He's been investing for almost three decades. He is the number five largest mobile home park owner in the United States, boasting over a $1 billion portfolio. He has an economics degree from Stanford University. He's the co-founder of Mobile Homes University, which has a boot camp coming up at the end of August. We're going to talk about some more. I am very excited to have you on the A-Game podcast. Welcome, Frank Rolf. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Nick, for having me. So I started talking a little bit before. I've done a lot of research. I've done some mobile home park stuff, but you're really a breath of fresh air and just the direct answers you give. You could tell that you have more in there than you can even fire off. Like I've listened to so many different interviews. So I want to just say thank you because there's a lot of people that do podcasts and a lot of it's just sales or beating around the bush and like just the content alone for you, even being a guest, let alone on your own podcast has been an outstanding value. Thank you very much. We, we, we try to just give people the facts and they can do with that what they want to do. I, I love it, man. So, um, you know, a little bit of backstory. So people for who aren't totally familiar with you, can you give just like a 30,000 foot snapshot of uh, who you are and where you come from? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, I grew, grew up in Dallas, went to Stanford, got a degree in economics, wanted to go to business school. Uh, back then, late 70s, early 80s, business school applications, you often would start a business and use that as your as your essay that was considered the better application so i had to start a business real quick so uh, one adult told me among other ideas that were pretty bad to do a billboard company so i, tra- I started a billboard company end of the first year i had three signs and i thought well i'm so close to about seven more i'm gonna i'm gonna do it one more year and you can guess what happened i never went to business school I did the billboard thing. I built that up for 14 years, became the largest private owner of billboards in Dallas-Fort Worth, sold that to a public company and started buying mobile home parks in 1996 and have been doing that ever since. So I've just been doing the same thing every day now since 1996, all about the uh, trailer park, mobile home park, affordable housing sector. And that's that's about the whole story. No, no more exciting than that. I love it, man. That's pretty exciting in itself. So mobile home parks are interesting. You know, right now I feel like the, the hot thing is um, you know multifamily people are kind of jumping into, and I feel like obviously there's a bit of a stigma to mobile homes, but people that understand it like yourself realize that they're cash cows and they're great investments. And I, I've been having more and more people reach out to me trying to help find them for them. So one of the things I heard you say is that you picked that asset class. One of the things that was exciting for you is that they can't build them anymore. I was not aware of that. Yeah, that, that's actually the key driver to what made me fascinated on my very first park. You know, coming out of the billboard space. Billboards are also a federally regulated industry, which most people don't know. So the U.S. government determines where billboards can go, and that's what creates value is the scarcity. So when you're in the billboard business, you're always looking at zoning maps, looking for the proper zonings for billboards, which are typically commercial and industrial. And I noticed from 14 years of looking at zoning maps as a part of every day, I never saw MH zoning in the entire city of Dallas. I'd only seen it maybe seven, eight times. So when I talked to the guy that owned the mobile home park that I built two billboards on about buying the mobile home park. I knew there had to be value simply because there were so few pieces of land with an M8 zoning. That's all I knew back then. And then I come to realize after I bought Glenhaven, my first park, that there, there was a reason you saw so little because cities hate mobile home parks with a, with a fiery passion. And they hate them not because of the stigma. People always think, well, they hate them because it's trailer park people and trailer trash. That's actually not what, what goes on. What happens is the cities lose a fortune on mobile home parks. Yeah, we have, we have a park, for example, or had a park, we sold it 
in Arnold, Missouri, right across from the uh, high school and middle school. And each kid in that park cost the city $8,000 a year to educate in the public school system. So every trailer in that joint had at least two to three kids. And yet the tax they received on each mobile home and the mobile home lot was only about $500 a year. So they were losing in some of these households, 24,000 a year per trailer. If you added up the park, which I did one time, it came out to over a million dollars lost. So that park, when they were doing their budgets for the year for the city, $1 million was going to that park. And that's why they hate parks. If you looked across the street, there was a high rise hotel, <clears throat> straight tax income, sales tax, lodging tax, no cost to the city, shopping center across from that, same story. They get property tax, sales tax, no, no cost to the city. So basically mobile home parks are the number one most money losing thing in any city. And that's why the cities don't want them, but they can't say that because if you say that that's illegal because of the duty to serve laws. So what the city says is we love mobile home parks. We love affordable housing. We love trailer park people, but behind the scenes, they, can, they don't allow them by claiming that the residents who are uneducated just don't appreciate trailer people like the city officials do. So they use the stereotype of the surrounding citizens to get their job done. So that's how it works, right? So if you have filed to do a rezoning to rezone land to mobile home park, the whole town will turn up against you because the city notifies all of them. They go to the newspaper, they sure it's in the newspaper and every surrounding property owner shows up saying, I don't want it. At the council meeting, the city says, well, the public has spoken. We love affordable housing, you know, but nobody else wants it. So I guess we can't do it. It's a scam. And because of that, in the entire US, there's only roughly 10 of them built per year, but there's a hundred torn down. So it's actually, it's, a, it's an endangered species. <clears throat> We're shrinking as an industry annually. But that's what creates the value. I mean, if you have a mobile home park in the U.S., in which there's about 44,000, you're not going to wake up 10 years from now and there's going to be 54,000 like they have in self-storage or apartments or anything because you can't build them anymore. And that gives you that moat that Warren Buffett talks about all the time. I mean, you can't build them, so therefore they all have to have value. I think that's fascinating. I never even thought about that, but we, we just finished doing a, an annexation and a final plan for development out here in, in uh, Illinois. And we're putting up nice townhomes and we still have people that are on every single meeting just kicking and screaming to not have them put up. So I can only imagine if we said we wanted to put up mobile homes, how much they would come and they'd start to kick and scream just because, like you said, they, they, they don't want change, period. But I never thought about how much harder that would have been if it yeah. was something that was maybe not looked at as like a luxury townhome. That's that's crazy. Yes. Yeah. We, we tried to do a rezoning of a piece of land as a park expansion in Carter Lake, Iowa, two or three years ago. So I showed up at the meeting. I got there way early. No one was there. I thought, man, I might actually get this deal. And by the time the meeting started, there were probably a hundred people. It was standing room only, oh. all just on my docket. So there were so many people, they could not let them all speak during the public forum section, right? So they had to ration the public forum for the sake of time. But even then they went on with the public forum for, I don't know, an hour or more. Every single person, one person went up and said, if you pass this, zoning i'm going to sell my house tomorrow the next person said if you pass this zoning i'm walking the contract for the house i already have under contract wow <laughs> it, was, it was absolutely insanity and here i was one individual and the city's looking at me and they know all i'm going to do they're going to lose money if they vote for it that's uh, overwhelmingly there's no chance in the world they would ever approve that thing it's absolutely impossible so that's why yeah that's why they're never built 
It's interesting. You know, I heard you talking about it too, which I, I think about a lot is even if you get a really nice A-class multifamily and you want to hold it for the next 10, 20, 30 years, 10 years from now, they could build one twice as nice across the street. And all of a sudden yours looks like crap. And like, that was always something I thought of, like, it's nice now, but what are you competing with later on? So just the fact that, you know, like you said, in the, in the self-storage, it, they kind of overbuilt. That doesn't seem to be the thing, which I really, you know, I'll dig more into the economics because that's really your your forte. But sure. the the lack of supply right now on houses is driving it up. So when you look at the lack of supply on mobile homes and the need for affordable housing right now, you know, all signs point to that that's going to be a strong asset class if things turn on some of these other avenues. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if you're in Illinois, if you ever go down I-55 from uh, Illinois down to, let's say, Memphis, <clears throat> when you go through the city of Arnold, just as an example, because I drive through there all the time, you'll see a guy build a self-storage on the west side of the highway. And then just as he finally gets the thing probably leased up, they build another one on the east side of the highway. <laughs> and then they build another one to the, on the northeast corner of that. So you got these three guys battling it. They've all got LED signs saying, buy one month, get one free. Next guy's like, buy one month, get two free. A year from now, it's going to be buy one month, get 10 years free. I mean, it, that's really hard to make money when you have infinite supply like that. So that's yeah. why we like mobile home parks. We like the scarcity aspect to it. I love the the things you were saying too about how when you started finding people that were having you look at, hey, this is really what you want to aim for to make your park look like. As I started looking at some of these mobile home parks and really like doing the walkthroughs and going through, I was blown away as once you're looking at the interiors and even some of like the, the landscaping and the way that the, the parks are kept, some of them were way nicer and way less headaches than the multifamilies were, which really surprised me because I didn't think that just from the stuff you've heard. And I went through and I was like, I wouldn't even know these were mobile homes if somebody just showed me the interior. And when you look at the park, they're quiet. There's not like people hanging around. And a lot of them I found as you drive around these areas, like they do kind of hide them out pretty well, that they're not out in the open, but it's almost like when you buy a car and then you see that car everywhere, you're like, oh yeah, now I'm starting to see those all over. So what was it that shifted for you? Because I know you said that there was a big difference from the first one you were looking at as you started scaling up to a little bit of the quality of the park. Yeah, see, the first park I bought, Glenhaven, was an absolute dump. I was in the wrong side <laughs> of town. I had people in there who were carnival workers. I mean, it was it was a freaking, it, it would have made an interesting sitcom or something. And uh, so I didn't know anything about parks, right? I only bought Glenhaven because I just happened to call the guy up and he told me, I'll sell it to you right now on the phone, 400 grand, 10,000 down. He would carry the debt. I couldn't say no, but I thought, well, I'll probably end up losing 10 grand on it but it'll be an interesting learning experience. So then when I had Glenhaven, I mapped out where the other parks were. So I went to all these other parks and they were so much nicer than Glenhaven. And I was like, what in the frick did I do? What, what, <laughs> what industry am I actually in? And I realized if I'm gonna buy any more of these, I don't wanna buy Glenhaven. I wanna buy ones like that guys, right? And, and what I, I think I found out from that is when I, when I bought Glenhaven, not being in person, I've never been in a trailer park prior to Glenhaven, never lived in one no family members in them, no experience at all. But there's a few trailer parks in every town that you drive all the time that are absolute catastrophes, right? And that becomes your stereotype because the ones on the commercial streets, like if you ever go, like when I lived in Dallas, if you ever went down to the uh, botanical garden, there's this terrible trailer park right across the street. And so everyone who ever went to the botanical garden would have seen that park and said, oh my God, a trailer park, that's the nastiest stuff I've ever seen. Because the good ones are in residential neighborhoods and they're hidden and you don't see them, right? So if you look at all our good parks, all our good parks, you have to want to seek them out to get them, man. You'd have to go on Google and put it in your mm -hmm. GPS because they're like one block off of the nice residential section. And from the outside, you don't even know it's a trailer park. We have like landscaped entries and fences, even gates in some of them. 
And, uh, and all the nasty parks are the ones in the industrial areas that you drive all day long because you're going to the store, going to the mall or whatever. So all Americans have this terrible stereotype just because it's the parks that are the easiest to see, they're the worst, right? It's just natural. People don't want to live in, you know, no one wants to live next to the, the strip shopping center. They want to live in the nice residential area near the school, but that's not the ones Americans see. So it's like people, people who like grew up in trailer parks or have family members who live in them, they have a broader exposure to the actual asset. But, but you know, the average American, they have no clue. I had no freaking clue what I was doing uh, at all when I got into it. I just realized after I got into it, as you say, it's like looking for the car and then suddenly, oh, wow, look at all those different, uh, my same car, same deal. I was like, okay, I'm in the wrong side of this industry, but there's a whole nother part of it that's actually pretty good. And that's what's changed my buying habits. I love that, man. And speaking of your strategy, are you doing a mix? Or are you focusing more on value add? Are you, are you buying stabilized? Is it one or the other or both? Well, from the, from the beginning, we've always been focused on buying stuff that's broken and fixing it. It's just, it's just how it's broken. The hardest ones that are broken are ones where it is truly broken. And then you have the, the better ones, which are still broken, because broken means they're not running at full efficiency, but ones where you can just like raise the rent right or just fix the management we had one one park it's totally crazy but what we did on that one was we just basically fired everyone so that was a very very easy turnaround but it was still a turnaround when you when you buy state to me a stabilized asset there's nothing you can improve on it's basically full the rents at full market so the uh the thing that i find is like a huge value of working alongside somebody like you is when you have something like that that somebody goes oh look at this park and i'm looking it over and i'm like okay he's got three managers here's his payroll People don't have a reference point for what a normal payroll, a normal team, a normal salary, like what those things are. And I always find that interesting. It's like, I can look at it and it could look good, but based on what? I haven't owned 20,000 lots and looked at probably 17 times that amount of parks. So I, I find a huge thing in that for the experience. And another thing that I, I hear a little bit of, um, you know, back and forth themes on, which seems kind of a preference is park owned versus tenant owned. Where, where do you stand on that? Okay, well, I, I can tell you where you want to stand on that. You, you, you want to stand on no park on homes. A park on home is only of any value for you to get lot rent, right? So we're, we're, our industry is a parking lot. I can't get paid parking unless you own a car, right? Because you can't just sl sleep on the, on the parking space. So I've, I've got I've to I've often be the catalyst to bring those cars in for me to get my parking lot rent. So if you're bringing in park on homes, which we do all the time, and you bring them in and you set them up and you sell them, then that makes sense. But the focus in the business should always be on the land. That's, that's, and that comes from the lenders, right? The lenders only value real property income. They're only going to allow you to cap real property income. Mobile homes are not real property. They're personal property. So there really isn't any debate on it. The, the, all the money's in the land. You don't, you don't want to be in the home part of the business. You want to be in the land part. So when you buy these, are you buying parks sometimes that are park owned and then selling them back? And yes. like, or would you just stay yes. away from park? We, okay, we, did one, uh, we did one south of Dallas that had 240 lots with 220 park owned homes. And the whole turnaround was to sell them all off. This guy was dying with them. He had an army of men doing repairs. He had a building filled with parts. It was killing the guy. He had inherited it. He didn't understand the business. So we, we stopped the insanity by simply just basically giving them to the people in them or selling them at a really small price because he, his repair and maintenance was eating his entire revenue. It, it, that, that's what happens with the homes. See, the homes, you know, mobile homes are not really built well for rental property. If you've ever been in one, 
they're pretty flimsy, right? I mean, they're, they, you know, the HUD allows them to build them at a much, much different scale than a stick build. So stick build's got two by fours, concrete slab. I mean, it's pretty hefty. Like a bad tenant in a stick build, what are they gonna do? Knock holes in the drywall, blow a window out. In a mobile home, a bad tenant can completely total the home in a week. All you'd have to do is basically get the, you know, turn on, turn on the faucets and fill the home up with water and the entire floor of the home is destroyed. The walls are destroyed. The whole thing's a wreck. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like China. You can't put it in the dishwasher. <laughs> and the only way you can keep people from breaking the plates uh, is they, it has to be theirs, right? If they have ownership, they'll keep it more gingerly, but like your rough and tumble renter that might be in a stick builder or an apartment, he'll beat a mobile home to death and, no time flat you'll be you'll be pouring a 200 a month easy and repairs on it it'll break stuff every day and that's and that's the problem our 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 homes just are not built to a level that allow you to profitably rent them that's that's the big problem it was interesting that's two things that blew me away on a couple of the first parks i did one was when the appraisal came in and they said exactly what you just said like this is about the land these these units really aren't worth anything i was like what like it just yeah. didn't make sense to me, but then you start to realize like, oh, okay, that does make sense. And then even what you're saying when when I'm hearing from people, oh, these just need a little bit of work. You know, the tenant beat it up a little bit. And I was like, are you sure? They're like, oh yeah, yeah. 5,000 per unit and you're good. And then I had yeah. the walkthrough in there and the the destruction, like holes everywhere, wildlife living in it. Like it was, yeah. it was nuts. I have literally a video of like a wild animal chasing the inspector out and he's like running through the park yeah. for his life but yeah. like it's crazy like they're walking and all of a sudden like a dog in the snow they just fall and you're like what happens like he went through the floor i'm like what like you know like it's it, it's that, interesting that is the problem with the product that's that's exactly correct it's pretty crazy so your strategy wise i, I obviously you're doing the value as you, you're decreasing the expenses you're raising the rents are you doing a strategy similar to multifamily where you're you're kind of paying it down lowering the ltv and then doing a refinance with a conventional loan Yes, yeah, so if you're going to do that in the mobile home park space, the way that normally works is you start off with seller financing or bank debt, and you you enact your turnaround plan. So you raise rent, fill lots, cut costs, and if you can drive the value of the property up 50% more than what you paid, uh, you can then get a loan and do a full cash out, pay off your debt and get all your capital back. You got to get to 50% above. The reason for that is to do that, you normally have to use conduit or agency debt. And they're gonna require a minimum $1 million loan. So you have to get a property that you can get the value up to a million five. So that 70% LTV, you've got the million dollar loan. That's what their minimum is. And they'll do you a 10 year non-recourse loan. So it's a great business model. And, and people have been doing that for as long as conduit and agency debt have been around. So uh, yeah, we, we do that all the time. And, and, and if you actually look at the numbers, that's the most profitable thing on many parks that you can do. But the problem is you've got to be able to raise the value at 50%. See, some people go in and they say, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna do a cash out refi in this park. Well, if you can only get the value of the park up 10 or 20%, you can't do a cash out refi. It's not going to happen. So you, it has to be the right kind of park. If you can get the right kind of park and you can pull it off, then yeah, it's a perfectly good business model. So if you're in that situation, let's say you buy the park and then some things go wrong and you're not able to get the value where it is, but you're in with some private lending or some seller finance and that they're going to call the note. Is there ways that you can come in and maybe do like a rate and term just to get out of the current note that you're in? Well, it, it, it and, and ask me that question again. 
is when you're going to refinance that, like let's say you weren't able to get the value up for the refi where it needed to be to perform based on the initial performa, uh-huh. can you do like a rate and term if you don't have it where it needs to be for the cash out just to get out of the seller note that's due? Okay, I'm, I'm, I've never heard that terminology before. Typically on, on your seller notes, we, we're normally shooting for a 10-year note. Uh, we won't do in lower, less than five. And so, and then it's estimated we have to do bank debt coming out of that. It's the more, more common than the full cash out refi is just a refi. Gotcha. So gotcha. On, a, on a refi, in other words, if the loan is, is under a million, it's, it's going to be bank debt. If it's a million and over, we're going to try and do conduit debt. If it's $2 million and over, we're going to try to do Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac agency debt. Those are kind of the tranches. So when you're buying the park on the front end, if the, if the going in price of the park is less than a million five, you're going to have to go out and get a small town bank loan, right? And then, and then the, the, the one catch-all for many people getting in, myself included, my partner Dave, is seller carry. I mean, all my early deals were seller carry. All of Dave's early deals were seller carry. So we're, we're, we're big fans of seller carry. The only problem you have with seller carry is normally the mom and pop is not is pretty old and they don't want to do really long-term financing. So, but you can sometimes eke out five, seven, 10 years from them. Then that buys you the time to fix the park up enough to put it into a good loan and then and then take them out. Do you have any concerns about 10 years go by? Like at a time we're at now, let's say like you get something, I don't know what you're getting for seller finance interest, but let's say you get something at like two or three or four or five percent. And then all of a sudden interest rates go up to like nine, 10, 11. How are you protecting yourself against that for the 10 year? Yeah, let's go over that for a minute. I mean, back when I had my billboard company, you know, I was there during Ronald Reagan. Reagan took interest rates up on commercial loans, like my billboard loans, all the way up to, as I recall, 17, 18%. That's how they, they killed off what was called stagflation under Jimmy Carter. And uh, when Reagan did that, it was, it was, a, it was literally a game, a game of chicken, Right because he knew the nation could not survive at 18% commercial interest rates. I mean, CDs were paying 10% at that period. And so what happened was he took this big game of chicken and it worked. And he, and he, he won the day, saved America, killed stagflation. But he, only, he had less than a trillion of federal debt when he did that. So the government wasn't taking it in the shorts because they, they didn't have that much debt they had to pay interest on. You're looking at a nation now that has almost 30 trillion of debt. Our nation is the poorest nation based on loans in the entire world, right? So if you take those rates up, like Reagan did, the nation would go bankrupt in a fraction of a second. So the government is going to keep those rates low. They have to keep them low. You're seeing that right now with quantitative easing. They've been doing quantitative easing since 2008. It's not about... It's not about the housing crash now. It's about the fact they can't cover their own interest payments. And so I don't think you'll see those kinds of rates. Now, I do think you'll see if you, if you and I'm an economics major, right? I mean, the, the, the interest rate of America since it was founded was a range of six to 7%. If you go back, look at the American Revolution and guys borrowed money to you know, buy a, a barn in 1776, what did they pay? They paid six or 7% interest. It was the the gold standard of interest. It makes sense, right? That's a reasonable amount of interest to loan someone money. It's not 1% or 10th of a percent like they give you at a bank now in a CD. That's crazy. So rates will go up, I guarantee it, but they can't go up like to, to a doomsday perspective, right? Well, you, you already kind of saw that. You, you know, here, here back during Trump, they tried to raise them up a little bit, remember? And they couldn't go very much because they just went up a little bit 
the whole plane started shaking violently and they knew the whole economy was going to crash. They had to jack it off again. So basically, I think, I think the range, I think you could see rates go up another point, maybe. Right now, conduit rates are about 3.2. Bank rates are in the fours. Seller finance rates are in the fours. Where would they be 10 years from now? Well, they might be in the fives. I don't think the government could afford the sixes. I think at the sixes, the nation's wiped out. So you think you're going to see a range, but you, so you need to plan on a point or two going up. So to going back to your original question, if you do a 10-year loan and you raise your rates with inflation and you pay down your mortgage on a 25-year amortization, which is the norm for our industry, you come out the other end at 10 years at 50% LTV. So you went in at 70% LTV and you made your payments. Now you're down to 50% LTV. Well, at 50% LTV, you can weather an interest rate spike and you'll be fine, right? So I think everyone will be fine. I don't, I don't, I'm a huge pessimist. I don't think we're all going to die by interest rate spike like we saw with, with Reagan, simply because before you'll ever even feel the pain, the nation will default. And then I don't even know what happens at that point. I guess all the, all the, uh, there's 30 trillion of bondholders, which are mostly, I think, the Chinese government, uh, they would all be wiped out. So the nation would still be here, but we, we would have no debt. And there, then since we defaulted the debt, we couldn't borrow money anymore, which means the government can only do what it can afford to pay, which, as you know, is not much. They couldn't even do the, well, Social Security would end, among other problems. So, <clears throat> but that's, that's I think, where, where you're at on rates. So it, it's a de definite real risk. Yeah, you have to plan on them going back up to six or seven, which is the norm, but you're not going to see 16 or 17. It's very that's logical, right? Yeah, I think like you said, if, if I guess it comes back to having the discipline to buy it right, just to make sure, you know, that's where you start to get in trouble is a lot of the people that I see doing like syndications on multifamily that are tapping these things out the day that they buy them. It's like, you know, some things adjust yeah. you, you're going to be in such trouble. You know, as a 60 year old guy, I can tell you, having been through multiple cycles, there's there's sensible debt. And then there's 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 insane debt, right? Sensible is when you are in things at, at 70 80 to 80 percent ltv right but when you see things start climbing where it's like 95 percent ltv 100 percent ltv there's been cases in american history where it was 110 percent ltv so the borrower has no skin in the game at all there's no margin for error that's when that's that that then you know it's going to blow that's like the sign of it's going to blow in the stock industry it's a price to earnings ratio and in then in the real estate industry it's it's often look at loan, loan to value because you know the, the minute, if you're at 95% LTV and you start to get those defaults and the lenders start losing 20, 30% on every loan, they're gonna stop making loans. And then when they stop making loans, the values start plummeting, the losses grow even harder. <laughs> then they vow never to make a loan again. The next thing you know, they're selling stuff on the courthouse steps and there's no debt. I lived through that back in Texas in the 80s and the SNL crash, there, there were periods of time where you could not obtain a loan in the state of Texas, right? So everything was for cash only. You could go to an open house of a $7 million house and the agent would say, okay, what do you think of the house? And you could say, oh, I, I kind of like it. What do you want for it? The lady's like, how much money you got? <laughs> do you have 800 grand? Yeah, okay, well, it's yours because there was no mortgage available on anything. So I've lived through that period. And when that happens, and that's how it happened there, when people were over leveraged and you had the crash and the bank stopped extending credit, that is probably the most bleak prospect you can possibly face. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, 
any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesaling, fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. That's really interesting. So I do see a lot of people on, on all sides of real estate. I started investing in about 2005, 2006. I, I feel like I caused the crash, like right when I was like, I want to get Man, in. Yeah. After I down. Yeah. yeah. But I see so many people that have been doing really well, but they've only been in it for a handful of years and they have no idea mm -hmm. how to adjust. They haven't seen those. Being that you've been through a bunch of them, I'm always interested because everybody that had been investing prior planned on some sort of correction that was overdue. I mean, obviously a pandemic and things like that. I don't think they really pointed to, but for you, was it more of just that, Hey, this is the thing, like this is the correction. This is just another thing we have to work around. Or was there something specifically unique economically about what was happening now? Minus, you know, I guess the moratoriums on evictions. Yeah. Well, what, what happens to all this stuff is it creeps up on you. If you look, I mean, I've been through every recession all the way back to the seventies and <clears throat> They, they come, they, they seemingly come out of nowhere and then they, everyone piles on, right? It, it's not, the, you, you, the problem is you get stuck and you can't get out. So it, let's just say the market went off 800 points today or tomorrow or something. When people get the mindset that stocks are, are no good, the timing's bad, all you have are sellers. You got no buyers, things starts to collapse. Same with single family. So it's a perception issue, right? And then people are like lemmings. They all just start running for the, the hill and just all fly off into the ocean um, and, you, and you're stuck in it. That's why you always have to be very nimble. You got to stay liquid. You got to be thinking ahead. Got to have a plan B uh, because when everyone has figured out what the direction, it's too late. So when, when you know, very, it, it, Sam Zell says, if everyone's looking left, you need to look right. I mean, that, that's, that's correct. And that's how we've survived 25 years of owning parks, multiple corrections in the, in the, in the economy but we, we have never had a loan default or a problem because we're always, always thinking like a pessimist. We're always expecting the worst and we're normally correct. <laughs> so you, you just, you just got to be careful. Now, the other problem though, is if you get too big a mindset of, of being a pessimist, you won't, you won't do anything positive, right? So if you curl up in a ball on your, on your, on your floor, you know, that may be the safest approach. Okay, then you won't be in a car wreck, but you starve to death. So, uh, you know, you got, you got to strike the right balance between pessimism and, and optimism, I think is the key. Do you bounce stuff back and forth with your partner on that? Where do you come into oh, every day? My partner, and I talk every day. We're always talking to Beck. He's also a pessimist. Oh, what too? So, I thought maybe it was one in one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the problem, you know, being a pessimist is easy because you're always correct because it seems anymore that no matter what, what you what your thoughts are on America, it, it only gets worse. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's hard to really project something positive on what's going on in the nation at this point. But the, uh, you know, our, our plan isn't being pessimist for pessimism's sake. I mean, I can say, yeah, you know, we've got a border crisis. Yeah, you know, the nation cannot afford all of its social subsidies, but, but what's, what's the plan? 
the key is coming up with a plan. So you say, okay, well, here's my, here's my plan to, to manage around that. You know, you got, you got to have a plan. It can't just be, uh, I, it, it, there's no money in, in making up concerns and worries. It, it's, it's like, how do you get around that? How do you mitigate that? Right. So for example, on debt, if you're really worried about interest rates going up, well, then do try and do non-recourse debt. Try and do debt that has a fixed interest rate. Try and go really far out on it. Try and refi three years ahead of when it comes due. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to proactively mitigate your risk. A lot of people they, they just worry though they don't take any action on it. That's the biggest thing that I think comes up a lot with people that listen to this podcast, even people at some point that are on this podcast. That interests me what you just said because having two pessimists and like you said, always being right. There is that fine line of you constantly what ifing yourself out of a deal. So what, right. are, what are your parameters where you go, okay, this is a realistic expectation of where our risk is, but it's still hitting A, B, and C, so let's pull the trigger on it. Yeah, okay. Well, first thing is you, do, you don't have any risk when you sign up the deal. A lot of people, they overthink the deal. As long as you have a due diligence out and a financing out, what are you so freaked out about? Sign the stupid contract. I mean, what's the worst case? <laughs> Three days in, you cancel? I mean, so that always drives me crazy when people are overthinking it on the front end. If you want to overthink it, overthink it during your diligence provision, but don't overthink it on the front, number one. So tie the thing up. Number two, come up with the best case, worst case, and realistic case scenario. Three sets of numbers. Say, here's the best this thing can possibly do if I hit all of my budgets, fill it, raise the rent, everything works perfect. Here's the worst case that would happen. I lose 20% of the customers. Uh, my, my private water well blows out. I got to rebuild the well. Okay, look at your worst case. If you can survive the worst case, if the worst case is not going to bankrupt you and the best case turns you on and the realistic case is okay, well, then you do the deal. I would never do a deal where my worst case would bankrupt you. That, that was crazy. So if you said, oh, yeah, worst case, I'll lose everything. Don't do that deal. There's, you don't need to accept that as your worst case scenario. But a lot of people, they, 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 they just get, they, they don't want to use any science. They just get phobic about stuff without just applying science. I mean, just do the science, put on your white lab coat and say, okay, here are the numbers. If this thing screws up, I'm going to lose $500 a month. If it does well, I'm going to make $5,000 a month. And then realistic case, I make two grand a month. Let's see what else can I do with my capital. Nothing that good. Okay, I'll do that deal. Right. But it, I, love that. I mean, that's why partner Dave and I've been trying to do the last 25 years is we're trying just trying to apply science to the industry, because when we got in it, there was no science at all. And there's still a whole lot of science yet to be unlocked about it. But, you know, you can't as, as a pessimist, you can't be comfortable with something unless there's a science to it. Right. That, that's the key. Uh, I mean, just a quick, boring story in that when I had my billboard business, I had an advertiser out in Terrell, Texas, and this guy had a barbecued restaurant and it was a front. It wasn't a barbecue restaurant. People thought it was his barbecue restaurant. It was a test lab for his real company. He, he had a giant nationwide catering business of barbecue. He, did, he catered, for example, when they would have events at the Capitol. He was the caterer. He had tried to unlock the science of barbecue. So what he did was he would tinker with recipes. He would even, to the second, measure time spent cooking like the baked beans. And then he adds in, 0.39 grams of molasses on this version. He would put these trays out in this buffet of like his latest three versions. And then he would see by how, many, how much, which tray went empty first, that that was what people wanted. And he constantly did it. And when he did these events, he catered them. People were like, oh my God, this is the best barbecue of all time. They had no idea he, there was a science to it. He was constantly testing, constantly tracking. 
It was insane. He was the most boring guy you ever talked to. He would tell you the ingredients of the baked beans to the to the grams of sugar and salt. And you were just like, God, God you're the most boring. Who in the world cares? But he was obsessed with this stuff. Right. And that's and that's what you need to succeed. You got to have a science to it. I agree. And I, that was part of the thing that really attracted me initially to commercial is that you started to see that there was a little more of an art form to residential and more of a science and math to commercial, which took some right. of the, it kind of takes some of that emotional aspect out of it. I mean, obviously you can still get it in there, but um, you know, part of that emotionally is I, I go back and forth for my stuff looking at like, okay, do I not want to own any types of parks in like in Ohio or in Illinois where it's going to be winters? And then you hear the other people are like, yeah, but if you own stuff for like in the South, the sun beats on it all day. Do you have any like deal killers or parameters that you look at for where state-wise or market-wise you want to buy or not buy? Yeah. The, the first, first off, state-wise, we own, again, we're in 28 states and that's because we were, we live in those regions, right? Parks work in all states. So it's not really a state problem, but there's some parks that you just can't bring them back to life, right? They just don't work. And the, and the things that normally make a park never going to be able to be turned around. Uh, first on the market, you got to have a market that's big enough to support a park with high enough home prices. So we're looking for metros of 100,000 and up and single family home prices of 100,000 and up and apartments, three bedroom of 1,000 a month and up. And that's and then this is what the lenders are looking for. <laughs> so let's just go back a step. Since we're, when, since, you know, real estate's all about borrowing. No one pays cash. You, you got to follow what the lenders want. Right. To have liquidity, you want you want deals where the lenders are all excited about making a loan. Right. So I'll just give you the parameters of what a lender wants. They want a market of one hundred thousand up on the metro, hundred thousand home and up, thousand three bedroom and up. They want to have, if possible, city water and city sewer, but doesn't have to be. They'll accept private water, private sewer. They don't really want master metered electric or master metered gas because those are, those are considered dangerous, they're risky, they're costly. That means you become either a gas or electric company. No one wants to be a gas or electric company, all right? They wanna have paved roads. They wanna have a paved parking system. It can either be a pad on every lot or on street parking. Um, and, and then they wanna have financials that make sense. They have a coverage ratio of about 1.2 to 1.25 the mortgage payment. And if you meet those criteria, it doesn't matter whether you're in Mississippi or Maine or Maryland or anywhere, then, then you're fine. Now, uh, as far as states come and go, you'll see there, there's a lot less activity from the larger players in the Southeast with the exclusion of Florida, right? And that is simply because if you look at the stats 20 years ago, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia had very weak stats. They had low home prices, low employment, nothing good going on. Then they totally turned it around, you know, what, 10 years ago or something, Alabama suddenly became the, the car manufacturing center of America. And so Alabama has now rebuilt itself. Economies are good. Home prices are 100,000 up. It's fine and dandy. Probably the biggest laggard of the crew. If you were to go get a loan, probably the two hardest states in America would be Louisiana and Mississippi. Okay. Because if you look at the fundamentals on them, there's very few markets that meet what banks want. That's, that's the problem. But, the, but yet in every state, there are markets where you do, right? I mean, you, you, can, you can go to Jackson, Mississippi, and you'll be fine. You can go to Baton Rouge in Louisiana, and you'll be fine. But it's harder to do the smaller markets there because the, the numbers just don't support it. If you have cheap home prices, you don't need a mobile home park, right? 
if you get a 40, well, like in Illinois, if you go to Southern Illinois, where they're down like around Chester or something, the homes are what, 40, 50 grand? Who needs a trailer, right? 50 grand buys you a two-story colonial looking home with a yard, <laughs> you know, mortgage payments, $100 a month. You don't need to live in a mobile home park. So you, you really have to chase, you have to chase after the stats the banks want. As long as you stay aligned with the banks, life is bliss. When you start going being a pioneer and you get off from what the banks want, you get an illiquid pile of stuff that you can't sell. That is a great answer. That's going to be a clip for the show for sure. Thank you for that. Sure. That's awesome. You know, a couple of the issues we had, one, a lot of the lenders were telling us they didn't want any parks that had units older than 1970. And then we had a, a lot of issues getting them insured, like the lender wanted as is or replacement costs on the units that were older than that. And it wound up being a lot, which probably goes back to why you don't want to have park owned, owned units. Well, let's go over the age of the units for a minute. The, the banks don't have a problem with stuff that's over, over 1970. They have a problem that's all you have. Okay. The lenders, they want to have a range of ages that you can have some 60s in there, but they want you to have some 90s in there too right? The lenders are not fools. They know that the older homes can't move. The stuff built before 76, you cannot move because you, you legally can't move it. It's pre-HUD. It has no HUD seal. So you can't bring it in anywhere in America. The 80s homes don't move because they're too old to move, right? So the, the homes that are 1990s to newer, those are the ones that are in the greatest risk of losing them. Bank doesn't want you to lose any homes. You lose the home, you lose the lot rent, you lose the lot rent, the collateral goes down in value. So they actually want you to have old homes, but they want them to look good. The banks, if you drive around with banks, banks, they rate parks based on what they call pride of ownership. And what pride of ownership means is that people might be poor, but do they keep up the property? So if you've got a 1968 home that's beautifully painted, yard is well-maintained, the bank has no problem with that at all. I've never had a bank say, oh God, look at that 68 home, get that the heck out of here. But they don't want 1960s homes that are looking awful, all rusted up, windows busted, nine running car in the yard. So as long as you make sure all your homes have pride of ownership, the only other item they want to see is they want to see at least a few new homes because that tells them that modern people would still live there, that the lots will fit modern homes, but they don't want to see all modern homes. Like if you went in and the home park had all 2020 homes, they'd, ha they'd have a panic attack <laughs> because they, they know that you could have a foreclosure crisis. You could have like half the homes go into foreclosure and the lender pull them out. So yeah, don't, don't, don't let them, don't, don't be thinking you can't have older homes. You can definitely have the older homes, but on the insurance, the, the problem with those older homes and the insurance is these are not homes. These are cars by definition, right? So like if you have a really nicely maintained 1970s car, classic car, right? And you have an accident, they're going to total your car. It's going to blue book at two grand. You're going to say, I got 25,000 in. They're like, I don't care. It's a, it's a 1968 Camaro and it blew, we're totaling it. And that's what happens with a lot of these homes. So, you know, foremost is one of the few people who insures the older homes, but they're not going to insure them for more than like five grand. And that's not going to replace the home. The home burns down. You can't get a home in there for five grand. It's more like 25 grand. So the insurance thing is kind of, is, is kind of a scam. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, it helps you a little, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do the whole deal. I mean, it might, if you have a 5,000 policy and the home burns down, the 5,000 might cover the cost of moving in the replacement home, but you still have to go buy a home and rehab it. So you might be out 10, 20 grand. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. 
He's played all over the world, and he's also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. Good info, good info. You know, I don't want to I don't want to take up too much of your day. You've been very, very great with your time, and this has been really great info. Sure. I definitely want to talk about Mobile Home University, but I like to call this the victory lap where we just hit a couple of key questions at the yeah. end before we wrap it up. One of them, I had a couple of guys, Billy has asked, where would you get started for mobile homes? Like, what would be your advice to somebody just starting out? Where do you go? What do you do? Okay, first thing you do, take, take a map, take a compass, drive a five-hour circle driving time around where you live and define that as your territory because you have a whole different feeling of control when you can wake up, go out to a property and uh, check out the property and be home by dinner, right? So that's your territory. And that territory defined every 100,000 person metro to start seeing the markets you actually have. Start calling every broker, go to mobile home park stores. The, there's a section there called resources, click on that click on the thing for brokers. There's about 100 mobile home park brokers in the US. They only sell mobile home parks. Contact each and every one of them. Say, I'm trying to buy a mobile home park within this territory, in these states. You'll also have to define how big a park you're looking for. Take how much cash you have, multiply times five, and then by 10. That's your, that's your range of a deal, right? And then you basically, now, now, now that you're kind of getting going, it's all about volume of how many deals you look at. You want to look at everything that's online, mobile home park store and LoopNet. It's in your territory. You want to talk to every broker to see what he has in your territory. And then when you find metros in there that you like, that have 100,000 up, 100,000 home and up, 1,003 bedroom and up, then do some cold calling and direct mail to those parks. It's not hard to find the parks. You'll find the parks on a simple Google search. But you just got to wade into it. Okay, it's like it's like trying to buy any asset. You you you. I mean, you're going to do how 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 good or bad you do is good based on how much effort you put into the volume of the deals you look at. So if a guy looks at 100 mobile home parks, he will always do better than the guy that looks at 10, unless the guy that looks at 10 is super lucky, <laughs> right? Because there there. I mean, there is some element of luck to it, but by and large, it's all about volume. Everything everything in this business is about volume. Agree a thousand percent. And Mike asked, what does your team look like? Because obviously 20,000 is a massive amount to work with acquisitions and management and all that stuff. So what does what your team and operations look like? Well, we, we have we have about 400 employees. So we're oh, wow. Yeah, uh, we have a, We have an on-site manager in every property on the properties. I have 150 lots or greater. We have maintenance staff in those. Uh, and then we have back office people. We have a whole sales department for the homes we're selling. Uh, we have uh, an accounting department, uh, HR department, acquisitions department. So, uh, you know, at our size, but, but, you know, we started with just one park. I had one park originally, as did Dave. So we've managed from, from one park and we just grew the thing organically. So, you know, get in the business. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need any staff. I mean, but you will have to have an on-site manager. So when you're starting out, like if you buy your first park, basically you have an on-site manager and you're the entire back office yourself, right? And if you don't know how to do accounting, then you'll have to get a bookkeeper 
part-time bookkeeper to do the books, but that's a normal structure. I mean, you don't have to, I, I'm not really sure that anyone's happy being as big as we are. We're probably too big. <laughs> okay. Uh, mo most people tend to like do portfolios that range from one park to probably 10 parks. That would be the norm. If you look at the top 100 largest owners in the U.S., uh, you know the 100th position is a guy named Abraham Anderson. He owns about 700 lots. That that I mean that's a perfectly good size in today's world. 700 lots is a is a big portfolio. I mean that 700 lot portfolio is probably worth 30, 40 million bucks. So, um, but you know if you look at that compared to apartments, apartments the number 100 is like 10 times that number. So our industry because it's so fragmented, you can still start off. And, and, and have lots of peers because everyone typically only owns one park. That's great info. And management-wise, do you, do you compensate them with like maybe free rent or are you paying them and renting out the units or having them live yeah, in them? What, what we typically do is we give the, the, the industry guideline is $10 per lot plus free housing. Huh. It's the same thing that they do in storage. Like we, we get the same managers that self-storage get. So self-storage people get tired of self-storage. They go into mobile home park. They go back to self-storage. You know, they work at public storage. They live above the, the facility at public storage. It's the same deal. Uh, lot, lots of people who have retired, lots of people who just like that kind of a job. But, you know, the one thing that all parks share in common along with storage is there's no high paid managers, right? So our folks in the field, what they all share in common, none of them make a whole lot of money. They do it because they like doing it. They like the people aspect. They like being their own boss. Uh, if they're retired, they like the incremental income because you get their retirement money too. Lots of reasons, but uh, but that's that's the that's the normal compensation. Excellent. Now, so talking about August 27th, 28th, and 29th, I believe um, coming up is Mobile Home Park University. I am going to definitely be part of that. Talk a little bit about what you guys are doing. I know it's a hobby for you to sure. do, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited about taking the upcoming course yeah. you guys are doing. Yeah, well, we started, when we started doing this stuff, we, and then again, we're obsessed with the science. So we thought if we're going to be doing this thing using scientific methods, it has to be like a college class. So it's not your typical real estate class. We, we don't promote it. I don't do cartwheels. <laughs> I, I don't sell you deals. I don't do any of that stuff. It's like, it's like a college immersion class. So it's basically, it's about 30 hours of talking about the science. And we have it all very easily organized in, in different chapters. Um, but it's just, it's just straight information coupled with a lot of other items. Like we go and walk parks, uh, a whole bunch of parks on Saturday virtually because of COVID. Um, so we, we, we try to give you the full three dimensions of it, not only the theory, but the practice of how it actually works. Then we have tons of case studies in it. The thing is filled with case studies of parks, both good and bad, tried this, here's what happened. But after 30 hours of it coming out of the thing, uh, I mean, you're, you're dangerous. And then on top of that, we give you some additional freebies like the list of all 44,000 parks in the US. We give you uh, our, our uh, deal analyzer software that we develop for ourselves. Uh, we give you access to our reference library of every contract and form you'd ever need. Uh, tons of ongoing support. I do, I do evaluations for people because I do about my opinion on, on parks as part of it. And I do probably want one or two of those every day. Um, but, but it's just, uh, in other words, if you're, if, you're, if you're serious about mobile home parks, not just tire kicking, but serious about it, it's the gold standard. I mean, we, we've had, if you look at the list of the top 100 owners in the US, a third of all of them started at boot camp. If you look at all of the largest portfolio owners in the US, every single one of them have sent their kids to boot camp. Okay, so 
you know, the New York Times went, they loved it. National Geographic went, they loved it. So, but again, they only loved it if you're really interested in the topic. So if you, if you just hate Ford vehicles, you wouldn't want to go to a symposium on Ford, right? And it's the same thing on this. So if you're, inter if you're really into it, you can't get enough information. If you're not really interested, well, there's too much information in the first five minutes. So, but that's what it is. It's, it's just like, it's like a real college class. Awesome. And it's mobilehomeuniversity.com. Is that how they find it? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Or just, or just mhu.com. mhu.com. Awesome. So uh, any other things that you have going on, how do they work with you? How do they find you? Is that really the most direct way to kind of touch base? Well, as, as far as all the things I write and do, is that what you're saying? Yeah, just any 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 way that you would want to, to have people connect with you or anything you yeah, have going on. Yeah, anyone wants to connect with me, if you just go to mhu.com, I'm all over the crazy site. I mean, my, my I think my cell number's floating around out there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's been the repository of all of um, Dave and my writings and recordings and everything we do, videos. We, we stick it all on mhu.com. And then my partner, Dave son, Brandon, he's in charge of mhu.com. So that's how it all that's how it all gets tied together. Awesome. And anybody listening, uh, the, the link for that will be on there. And I'm going to expedite this episode so that it comes out with enough time for people to listen and jump on and do that. I am absolutely going to be part of it. Uh, last last couple of questions before I let you go. Sure. I did hear that you own a piece of Abraham Lincoln's shirt from the night I he do. was assassinated. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I, I collect historical artifacts. I've been doing that for, oh gosh, about 40 years now. And when Lincoln was assassinated, they, they couldn't get his shirt off him, right? They got his tuxedo off. The tuxedo's in the Smithsonian. But the shirt, they couldn't get off him because it's too hard to get the shirt off somebody who's been shot. So they cut the shirt off. They literally just took a, took a pair of scissors or a knife and they cut the sleeves and the whole shirt off and then, and then yanked it off him. So what happened was the shirt ended up back in DC with Lincoln's secretary. And what she did was, or actually it was he did, he, he then cut the thing up into pieces and gave those to the different people in the government at the time, right? So they float around America. They don't know how many pieces there are. Some people think there's 10, some think there's 20, but I bid on one of those pieces at an auction, oh my gosh, 30 years ago. And then it resurfaced again at auction 30 years later and I bought it at that auction. So yeah, I have an actual piece of his shirt uh in a little little case that the guy built who got it, it the, the piece of shirt i have went to a guy named Frosyth, who was the surveyor for the u.s government uh during 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 that period during the civil war so that's how, that's how i have my piece but yeah I, I have all kinds of strange items like that it is true that's fascinating i think that that's really cool a final question before i let you go knowing what you know now about life and business what advice would you give a younger frank rolf today you know, I would give a younger Frank Rolfe the, the same advice I gave myself back back in the day, which is you only live once and you don't really know anything about life, whether you're just happy or you're sad. So do what makes you happy. For me, being happy has been about business. I'm like kind of a workaholic. But, you know, if you're unhappy with your life and how it's going, break out, and do something different. Right. And so that, that's why I've always tried new stuff, tried mobile home parks, did billboards. I'm not, I'm not averse to trying stuff as long as I see whether it makes my quality of life get worse or, or, or better. Uh, in the case of parks, it made it go better. But, uh, you know, you got to take action. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, think like a man of action, act like a man of thought. You know, one without the other is of no value. So uh, since you only live once, you know, learn, learn how to do stuff and then do it. See if you like it. Don't try something else, but learn what the, you're doing before you do it. 
right? And, and I try to apply that, even my collecting history stuff. I mean, part of it is the fun of learning about history. And then I try and go out and collect pieces of it. And then I try and learn what I bought. <laughs> it, it, it's just, I, I like that, 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 you know, give and take of learning and action, right? And I, and I like to read lots of biographies, always have of different people throughout history, mostly business or military and how their lives went. And, you know, I always like the underdog story of someone who tries out something that's new and different, doesn't really know what they're doing, give it the old college try. You know, to me, there's something kind of, kind of uh, noble about people who, who just, who take action because a lot of people don't take any action. And, you know, it's kind of sad because they, you know, maybe live their whole life as the officer at the bank and, you know, and at the end of the movie, do they really look back and go, man, what a great life that was. I mean, I would rather try something out and fail at it and still say, oh, I tried that out. It's a pretty good shot, man. And, and then try something else out. So I guess the key is just be, be, be experimental, keep a science to it, keep a positive attitude, you know, strive for a quality of life, which is not based on finances. It's based on all kinds of stuff. Harvard found it had nothing to do with finances. Harvard found on the longest study they ever did psychologically that the happiest thing you can do in life is have good relationships and nothing to do with money, right? And then Warren Buffett told someone that recently and they thought he, he was a heretic because he spent his entire life building this massive money and he and he he also agrees now since he's about to die he's i don't know what 90 something years old that it was it was all about the relationships so again you know mobile home parks are a great way to make money but you know money isn't the be all end all you got to have you got to have more than money you got to have your health you got to have relationships got to have some fun right got to got to just have, have a you know a, a moderation in all regards have a well-rounded life that's basically it Man, that was outstanding. You definitely did not disappoint. You didn't waste a single word that entire hour. I thought that this was an excellent podcast with tons of great value and information. I very much appreciate you being here, sharing your experiences, sharing your knowledge, and I'm very much looking forward to your boot camp in August. Any final thoughts before I let you go? Well, no, uh, I appreciate you having me on here because, you know, back in the 90s, no one would even talk about mobile home parks. It was like talking about sewage or something. It was considered <laughs> that you had to have it. It was so gross. No one would want to hear about it. So I'm glad people are getting a more open mind on the, on the industry. Uh, you know, I think the stigma is kind of wearing off. People are going to get turned on to the idea of living small and affordable houses. So it's kind of refreshing to see so younger people such as yourself who actually care because it wasn't that long ago. Nobody cared at all. Yeah, I'm excited for it, man. You definitely bring your A game. This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Frank Roth, ladies and gentlemen.